Thank you. So many things to celebrate. Um, in this Advent season, we celebrate the first coming of Christ as a baby in human nature to secure for us a salvation that we cannot ourselves. But now we also wait with eager expectation the second coming. In this Advent season, we celebrate and we wait. And so we've been preaching out of Romans 8 in order to find ways on how we wait in this tension, right? We're all familiar with origin stories, superheroes, historical figures, and even our family origin story. When you get to learn and ask your own parents about where they were born, you start realizing how they grew up, how they became the people that they became, how their stories were affected by their origins. A good origin story is important because it shapes the storyline. We find Rax to Riches stories very compelling, right? Because their origin story is one that is filled with obstacles. And so we expect to see a transformation. In a way, we find it compelling because we want that story for ourselves. We want to see an improvement of our own origin story. Where you're from is important. It provides the context and the setting of a good storyline. And if you like Korean dramas, you know it's very important because most of the conflict arises from that very issue. Boy meets girl. One of them is from a poor family. <laughs> we cannot escape where we're from, our family background, what we're born into. Both the blessings and the struggles, I can't deny that I am profoundly shaped by where I was born, who I was born into, to the point where I can trace all my triggers, all my comforts, to how I was raised. I was raised in an immigrant family with parents who were really busy trying to make it. So they were absent most of the time, which led to me, myself, and my sisters to have to grow up rather quickly. We learned to cook from a very early age. Not fancy stuff, just hamburger patties, drenched ketchup, rice, little side of kimchi. We also learned to have this obsessive taste for dulce leche. Because, you know, in Argentina, you grow up with a sweet tooth, and there was no adult supervision. <laughs> so I became largely independent and self-sufficient at an early age, without the need for attention, for affection, for intimacy. During the summer, in one of my counseling sessions, um, my counselor asked me to picture a five-year-old me and speak to him. So I picture five-year-old Daniel, very cute boy. You might wonder, what happened? <laughs> um, and so I spoke to him and I said, man, I wish you had experienced more warmth, 
more affection, more attention with your parents. I know my parents did their best. Right? And I have a wonderful relationship with my parents. I love them to pieces. But that boy, right, in those formative moments, is gone and lost. All those opportunities for affection, for warmth, is gone, right? And that, I have to face, affects how I deal with intimacy, my pursuit for affection, my pursuit for connection, and how I rely on being self-sufficient, on being independent, on being alone. I face those struggles. That's part of my origin story, and it shapes the contours of my life. Question is, what is your origin story? What are the circumstances of your life, your childhood, the shape, how you live, and what you pursue? Some of us have been raised in more difficult circumstances, some of us in less so. So we strive, right, to either live up to those expectations or those hopes, or we strive to break free from them. If you've been born into a family of need, then you will strive and you will spend a lot of your energy looking for stability, financial stability, emotional stability. If you've been born in a place, in a family with a lot of abundance, then you will spend your energy trying to live up to those standards, to those resources that has been afforded to you. If you've been raised in a family of uh, a one parent, you will... Your perspective about how you achieve that family stability, the family dynamics, is going to be affected by how you were raised. And now, it's not just family culture, but it's about our larger culture as well, right? Our culture speaks to us about what is significant, how we should grow, how we should... um, form relationships, what jobs to pursue. Our culture tells us, imprints in us what is important. And so Paul, I think, speaks to that in this passage. It's no exaggeration to say that most Christian interpreters believe that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest passage of the greatest book in the Bible. It is a story about our eternal salvation that we have been assured of by the work of the Holy Spirit, one that cannot be taken away from us. It is a rich and complete portrayal of what, a, what it means to be a Christian. And so today we're going to read a part of that passage, which we find in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. And it reads, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order 
that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God. Let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll continue. Father, we just thank you in this Advent season. We raise our gaze upon our Lord Jesus, who took the form of a babe to search out for us, to bring us back to the family, humbling himself to the point where he subjected himself to the elements of this world. We celebrate because he comes in weakness, not in strength, so that we who are weak can be strong. So Lord, we thank you for this love and sacrifice which we remember during this season. May you make this truth a reality in our lives so that as we go through the next few weeks, We'll hold Jesus dear in our hearts so that we may be assured of our salvation. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. We find Paul continuing his riff in chapter 8 about the assurance of eternal life in the spirit. Pastor Chris spoke about it. The first uh, 11 verses, he speaks about having life in this way. The Spirit gives you life. You're not dead anymore. You're not condemned, but he gives you life. In this passage, Paul says, he also gives you identity. And a good story of identity always starts with a good origin story. We are debtors, he says. After that powerful introduction of having life in the Spirit, Paul connects that idea by writing, so, brothers, we are debtors. We have a debt to pay. And that's how we start out our lives. We begin our origin story in a situation of lack, of need, of debt. And Because we have a debt to pay, we live life trying to pay it off in the terms and conditions we are most familiar with. Most of us live life trying to accomplish something, right? to find meaning, to find connection. Because in and of ourselves, we're not satisfied. We're not complete. We lack, we need, we are in debt. Consider a baby, a beautiful newborn. How dependent is he? Is she for the gift of life? Any other animal newborn is able to walk within hours of being born. But a baby, he got to hold his head up for three months because he doesn't have the strength to hold his own head. Highly dependent on everyone else for mere survival. We're born with great capacity to need things. And because of that, we have a great desire to fill that need, to cover those needs. When Paul says that we are debtors in verse 12, he says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Here the word flesh doesn't mean bodies. Flesh means by way of this world, right? It means uh, that we have this worldly orientation. All of us share it. 
So because of that, we attempt to pay this debt off by the ways we know how, by the terms and conditions we're familiar with. We try to validate our existence right, by finding purpose, meaning, many different things. And we do that when we pursue those things. We hope that one day we'll feel the sense of, I have paid my debt. I have filled my need. I have gotten what I wanted. In some ways, the Pharisees are a great picture of that, right? They validated their existence and purpose by pursuing and adhering to a strict code of laws, something that's impossible, but they did it, and they forced others to do it as well. A lot of tension in the New Testament is about that, right? The laws, the rituals, the sacrifices, right? But Paul isn't talking about that. Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome. Rome, which is a city, if I may, much like ours. You see, at that time, the Roman Empire had brought great unity, great political unity to the Mediterranean Peninsula. As they went and conquered these regions, right, these peoples, they had one mandate. They said, you can keep your own laws, you can keep your old traditions and beliefs, but you just have to add this one thing. You just have to add emperor worship. You just have to be open to the other religions that are going to come your way. We have built these great roads for commerce and trade, and you will have a mix of ideas, values, and cultures, and you just have to accept all of them. So they were... They had a policy to maintain the uniformity, a conformity through a mix of elements of religions, of values, of systems, and emperor worship. Just add this to the rest of the things that you believe in. And most peoples were okay with that because they were polytheistic anyway. They had many different values and beliefs, so just adding one more thing didn't really cramp their style, right? Rome, in a sense, is much like New York. Secular state, tolerant of many different beliefs, values, religions, financial mecca, arts, entertainment, open roots to the rest of the world. There will be a hodgepodge of peoples, of things, which also gives the birth and propagation of values. You see, Rome wanted its subjugated peoples to conform to the culture of empire. If you are a Christian, well, don't be so Christian. You can accept the other things that other people believe in. Yeah, you're Christian, but you have to be tolerant too. You can follow other trends and beliefs and systems. Maybe it's not emperor worship for us, but maybe we just have to look around to see what are the things that our hearts are inclined to follow. What are the great structures that are being built, right? And in New York, there's no short of that, right? Entertainment, sports, 
finance, arts, fashion, so many different things. We just have to dig a little bit deeper into our hearts to see what else we may be inclined to follow, to worship, what we often are tempted to add to our faith as the North Star of our lives. Because it may not be emperors, but we all worship something. And so there's this famous quote by David Foster Wallace, who's, who's not religious, but he, he has this idea that everyone, even secular people, worship something. So the quote goes like this. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. There's this idea that we all worship something, right? And this is the way that Paul is talking about. This is living according to the flesh, to the ways of the world. And in the words of Paul, and even David Foster Wallace, they say that ultimately, they will lead to a certain spiritual death. Paul writes in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, after writing 11 chapters of this beautiful exposition of salvation, right, of salvation and faith, he summarizes in two verses this imperative. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul speaks of this tension that we live in, right? It's either conformity to this world, according to the ways of the flesh, or living as a sacrifice of spiritual worship. What is it that we worship? What is it that we're inclined to fill the need of our origin story? Most of us seek to fix a specific part of our lives. Right? One isn't enough. The spiritual, in a sense, doesn't touch the physical or the financial or the professional or the relational. So we seek to fix these other areas in some way saying that Jesus, yeah, is good but may not be enough. Wouldn't it be great if it was Jesus and money? Wouldn't it be great if it was Jesus and popularity or status or meaning? Paul writes, don't live according to the flesh, but if you put the deeds of the body to death by the spirit, you will live. He's referencing what he mentioned in the first uh, 11 verses, right? The spirit gives you life. But here in this passage, he also says, the spirit gives you identity. 
Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Not only does the Spirit give you life, he gives you a new identity. You are a child of God. So he expounds on this theme. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption. Adoption meaning that we have the full rights and privileges of a natural born child. Positionally, we are children of God just as Jesus is. We enjoy the same status as Jesus. But the verse speaks more than just that. Douglas Moo writes that the spirit of adoption means that we have not only the status, but we have the heart of sons, the heart of children. So the spirit makes us aware of this status so that we are able to cry, Abba, Father, Dad. I watched this show recently. Um, It's a silly show. Don't watch it. Um, But the protagonist is a cop, and he's older, but he's adopted. So he has this flashback scene where he's in, in the home having just been adopted with his brother and mom. So he's a family of three. And they're celebrating uh, a birthday, the natural-born son's birthday, which the mom also joined together, so she just wanted to celebrate one birthday. So they're celebrating the adopted son's birthday, fake birthday. And in this moment, you can see the trepidation of the adopted son. He's just like uncomfortable, just adopted. This doesn't feel like my family, right? And as the brother receives a gift and he's full of joy and joking around, the brother is like, hey, ask for your gift too. It's your birthday too. And so he shyly asked for the gift which the mom had prepared. And you can sense the brother's joy. He's, like, he's able to share the gift together. Um, and this moment for him is important. So the adopted son, as he receives it, starts to feel a little bit of emotion. So he conjures up this question, can I call you mom? And before the mom can answer, the brother's like, of course you can call her mom. She's your mom too now. Go ahead. Right? And so the mom says, sure. And so he shyly cries out, mom. It's not enough merely to have status. But the status must affect the heart. It must transform the heart. Jesus is like that brother saying, go ahead, you have the status, call him dad. Call him Abba, Father. You have that freedom now. You share in the same gifts, the same relationship, and the same heart. The word Abba in Aramaic that Jesus uses to address God, Luther writes about that. This is but a little word. And yet notwithstanding, it understands all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affection of the heart speaks after this manner. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, yet I am your child and you are my father for Christ's sake. I'm beloved because you 
of the beloved. So this little word, Father, conceived effectually in the heart surpasses all the eloquence of the great speakers that ever were in the world. God is our Abba. He is our Father. And so by adopting us, he changes our origin story. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your situation is. You get to enjoy the full privilege and rights of the adopting parent who is God the Father. We share the same inheritance of Jesus Christ. No longer must you strive to find meaning and purpose and identity out of this need and lack that we're born into, this brokenness, because God has adopted us. God has given us this new identity. Yeah. It feels distant sometimes, right? It feels like it's not quite enough. Andrew and Pastor Chris spoke the last two weeks about this tension that we live in the here, but not yet. There's an aspect that we have received this identity of adoption, but there's this also an aspect that the privileges and the benefits are not yet complete. Paul mentions that not only are are we children, but we are heirs. We're heirs with Christ, which means that there's a future aspect of this adoption. There's something that we're waiting for. There's an inheritance coming, so we're in this wait mode. And so most of us, our default setting is to want to earn that inheritance, to want to be able to control how we get it and how we get to spend it. It's natural, right? Even though we're rescued from our flesh, we're still in contact with our culture, with the things of this world. We're not removed from it. So yeah, we are in this tension. We're born with this need. And even though Jesus is my everything, why do I still strive? Why do I still struggle? Paul is saying in this passage, let your life story be dictated by the end of your story, not your origins. Yours is a story with a satisfying and fulfilling conclusion. Your inheritance and the promises of adoption that are afforded to all the children of God cannot be taken away. So instead of trying to improve on your origin story, live out the abundance of the end of that story. It's not a sermon unless we have a Lord of the Rings reference. This is not in the book, I don't think. I know some of you will correct me. Uh, but there's a film, in the film adaptation, Fellowship of the Rings, um, Facing the shards of the broken sword of Isildur, Aragorn is facing tension about his identity. He is descendant of the great kings of Gondor, yet he's living a life of a ranger, right, of an outcast. He knows that Isildur, his ancestor, had the opportunity to rid evil from Middle-earth 
by throwing the one power, uh, the one ring into the fires of Mount Doom. Yet in his moment of weakness, right, he wanted that power for himself, so he doesn't, and he takes it himself. Aragorn knows this, and he's wrestling with his origin story. And here we meet Arwen, his love interest, a match made in elf heaven. And so she comes and says to him, why do you fear the past? You are Isildur's heir, not Isildur himself. You are not bound to his fate. The same blood flows in my veins. The same weakness, Aragorn replies. And she says, your time will come. You will face the same evil, and you will defeat it. Your identity is distinct from your origin story. You are not your ancestor. You are not bound to it. You are not slave to it. Why are you afraid? The same test will come, but you will overcome. Arwen knows something that Aragorn doesn't. You see, she has the gift of foresight. She can see the successes that will mark the story of his life. The spirit of adoption gives you that new identity. It says the same thing to you. You are from this world. Yes, you are from this culture, but you are not of it any longer. You no longer share the same weakness, the same fate. The spirit who lives in you will overcome the same evil, the same test when they come. Live out your life in this confidence of the spirit in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead will see you through beyond your origin story. Paul goes on to say that we'll suffer in Christ so that we may glory in him. doesn't mean that we go out and seek suffering. doesn't mean that we go out to seek a life of rejection the same way Christ did. But what he's saying is that if you choose to follow Christ, suffering will come. You will face tension, anxieties, maybe even persecution. But no that beyond those things, there's glory waiting for you. We started with the importance of this origin story, which likely shapes what you're pursuing, how you're pursuing it. But more important than that is your destination, where you're going. You are heirs. You have an inheritance waiting for you. You are children of God. If you have full assurance of that, you may pursue whatever you want. Pursue money. Pursue family. Pursue relationships, status, and all these things, right? But do it from a position of fullness, of grace, of abundance. Don't do it from a position of need and lack. If you do that, If by God's grace you receive those things, then you will be filled with thanksgiving and praise. But if by God's will you don't get what you want, it will not distress you. It will not destroy you. You will persevere because you have this assurance that cannot be taken away from you. You have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you. 
We are all familiar with the story of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a father with two sons. The younger son goes to the father and says, give me my share of inheritance so I may go away from our family. The father in his mercy does, gives the inheritance. And so the son takes it and goes away, lives recklessly and becomes destitute. And so, with his tail between his legs, he comes back to the father, not wanting anything but just a place in his household. Maybe as a servant, I'll serve you. But the father embraces him, kisses him, restores his position as son. Full privileges, full rights. And as much as the story is about the prodigal son, it is about the older brother. As he comes back, the older brother sees that there's a commotion, a celebration, so he asks, what is going on? And someone tells him, your brother has come back. And so the older brother is indignant. He's angry. He said, my goodness, this guy, he took a third of our wealth, spent it, now he's back? You know what he's probably thinking. It's going to eat away into my inheritance. If not that, we see that the father had killed a fattened calf for the celebration, something that was reserved for a special occasion. The older brother was probably eyeing that fattened calf. The father comes out of the celebration and says, Brother, son, come in. Your, your younger brother has come back. And the older brother is so indignant, so angry, says, I have been with you my entire life. I have served you, and you haven't given me one young goat to celebrate with my friends. And now this other son of yours comes back, spending all his money with prostitutes, and you kill the fattened calf for him? Oh, isn't that so telling about the older brother? This other son of yours comes back. Oh, there's no relationship there, is there? The older brother is indignant. He's angry. And so the father says, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. These words are so profound. The father is saying, restoring that relationship. He's not that other son of mine. He's your brother. He was lost and is now found. The story ends with the older brother remaining outside of the party. We don't know what he does. Jesus tells the story because he wants his listeners to know, listen, the sinners are coming back. The lost are being found. I am bringing everyone back to the family. The ones with the unseemly origin stories are being written back into the family. So accept them, love them, embrace them, celebrate, share your inheritance with them, be co-heirs, be older brothers. The older brother stays outside. And I sometimes wonder, oh man, what, what did he do? I wonder. But in this season, 
Jesus reminds us that he is the older brother we need. He's the natural born son of the father. He is the brother who actually goes out and searches for us. He searches for us to bring us back to the family. He comes draped in the fragility and humility of a baby. A baby who was completely dependent on Mary and Joseph to hold his head up for three months to feed him. The Lord of the heavens couldn't hold his head. Comes in the most humble and fragile form of life. His search for us comes at a great cost, right? In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To find us, he suffers the indignities of the human condition, of the human body. He doesn't come as one with full rights, with full privileges, with full strength. He comes as a servant, Paul says. He comes as a slave. To take away our spirit of slavery, Jesus takes on slavery itself. For us to be adopted as children, he has to lose his sonship on the cross. No longer is he able to say, Abba, Father, on the cross. What does he say as he exclaims his last gasp? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Loses his sonship so we may be adopted. For us to share in his inheritance, he forsakes his. And so he adopts our fallen, broken origin story so that we may be found redeemed by our older brother. He takes our origin story so that we can take on his glorious, satisfying conclusion. So that's what we celebrate during this Advent season. We celebrate that he's coming We celebrate that we have this identity in Christ as children, fellow co-heirs. So we no longer have to live out out of our need, out of our lack, out of our broken origin story, but we live out out of this identity, of the destination, of the conclusion, of the story that Christ might start for us. And it is a glorious one. So pursue. Pursue all the things that you want. But don't do it out of need, out of brokenness, out of lack. Do it out of this identity that you have abundance, that you have life, that you have identity, that you have everything in Christ Jesus and the spirit who lives in you. Let's pray. One of the things that is great about knowing where we're going is that we cannot be phased by disappointment. 
We cannot be broken by not getting what we want or expecting what we need. I love the words, you will face the same tests, but you will overcome them. That is the spirit in you, saying you will face tests, you will face struggles, but you will overcome them because I am with you. The Spirit of God gives us that identity, that full assurance that cannot be taken away. So we go in confidence facing this life. It's a difficult life, but we face it with the confidence that the Spirit gives us. Lord, we thank you because in you we face no lack, no need, even though we may have broken origin stories, Lord. We celebrate the glorious ending of the story that you have given us. And so in that, we go in confidence, in joy, in celebration in this season because, Jesus, you are our everything. And beyond you, we need nothing.